Welcome to the first episode of the Quantum Podcast. My name is Ethan Morland. I'm the host of the podcast. And the aim of the podcast is to speak to high performers about the hows and the whys behind what they do. Now, this first episode was filmed a couple of weeks back with a man called Leon Bustin. And Leon is a man of many talents. He's an ultra runner, a jiu-jitsu fanatic, CrossFit fanatic. He is a fitness YouTuber, uh, one half of the Lean Machines, which is a YouTube channel based in the UK. He is an author of two books, an online coach, and the list goes on and on. We had a great conversation where we spoke about things to do with his personal training career, how he stood out at the start and got his first job in personal training. We also spoke about his YouTube channel and how they have transitioned from bodybuilding to CrossFit, from CrossFit to ultra running and a bit of jiu-jitsu and much, much more. We also spoke about the ultra running itself and the mindset that he has to have to do these events, the training that goes into it and all the sacrifice that you have to have to be able to take part in these events. Leon, I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, There's many lessons to be taken from this episode, so I hope you take at least one away from it. So please enjoy this episode and give it a like and subscribe to the YouTube channel and follow us on wherever you can get your podcasts. Welcome, Leon Bustin. How's it going? Yeah, good, man. That's a, that's a bit of a list, isn't it? It is. It is. <laughs> it's just, just collecting things as I go. But yes, I'm very good. Uh, very happy to be involved with the podcast. Thank you very much for asking. I asked you beforehand, but I'd like to ask you again so people sort of can understand it. How are you recovering from a 250-kilometer ultra marathon in the desert in the middle of Jordan? Um, Surprisingly well. I think I'm a little bit British, and uh, sometimes I get a little bit like paranoid that I'm going to talk up a major injury. But surprisingly, this one, I feel phenomenal. It was... It was just over a week ago we came out of the desert. Uh, When I left, I just had slightly sore lower back uh, um, and a couple of nails that wanted to fall off. But at that point, I had sensation in them, which was rather uncomfortable. Um, And then a couple of days later, to be honest, all it is is that CNS and mental fatigue. So I felt fine by Tuesday, ready to train last week, um, which is, a you know, I guess a tip of the cap to the preparation beforehand. But mentally, it probably took me about five or six days to be in a point where I was like, right, okay, I'm back. I'm back on this planet now. Absolutely wild. Like, but you were you weren't always an ultra runner. You've this is only a recent endeavor that you've gotten into. So I kind of want to take it back to the start. How did you get into fitness and where did you start? Cool. This is yeah, this takes me all the way back to when I was about 10 years old. So first of all, you know, some people neglect the environmental factors my dad was a professional boxer so even though my parents split when I was quite young I'd always always had somebody relatively close to me in my life who was extremely dedicated my dad was the guy who would get up at five o'clock in the morning go for a five mile run go and work on a roof all day then come back and do a load of bag work and pad work and stuff like that and then go to his professional boxing club a couple of days a couple of times each day half the time just to get ready for fights. So fitness was always something that was in the household. And as I've witnessed with my three-year-old, I come downstairs and play in the gym and she comes in there and starts playing with her barbell and throwing things around and mimicking what you're doing. So there must've been a little bit of a seed planted there. Um, But the big thing was I had uh, 
young or in, they call it infantile asthma but i say you know when you use the word infantile i was like 10 11 years old and still suffering quite badly um so i didn't really do too much sport that meant i had to move or get out of breath um but i got to my first year in high school and it was the first you know, you know we've all got these teachers it was a teacher who took that little bit more time rather than just getting frustrated or ignoring you and telling you to crack on to ask the questions as to why I didn't want to do cross country or why do I feel like I have asthma attacks? How do they come on? So we did this little experiment and what we realized is that I was more scared of the feeling I was getting before that anxiety driven feeling of potentially having an asthma attack that I would stop before I even got within 50% of even, even potentially having one. So we started doing little runs and she would have my inhaler and then give me my inhaler that little bit longer after I needed it or after I, so I thought I needed it and very, very quickly realized that I didn't actually need it at all. The feeling that I was having was I was just out of breath and not fit. I wasn't about to have an asthma attack and be put on a <laughs> ventilator machine, which is a very similar things when you're at that peak, peak threshold. Um, and that for me, you know, 10, 11 years old, that sparked not only my enthusiasm enjoyment for sport but also my fascination for the body and how it works because it was two things where I was like you've got a mental and physical connection here and it was your mental game that was completely letting down your physical ability and I remember that from such a young age so then from there got into cross country you know nothing like now um, it's like 6,000 meters I think we were running at that point ended up getting into the South of England trials on the cross country side of things, had a good go at it, then got into 3000 meters on the track, got my first humbling, which was getting to the South of England trials on the track and being about a minute and a half slower than the, the very last person on the track at 13. So you're getting the slow clap of well done for finishing. <laughs> um, and then just the usual thing as boys, you know, got into my football, uh, had a go boxing, boxed for about four years. That was that was great. And then, um, you know, that was when we had the, the the dawn of the lean machines after deciding to go traveling, do the usual, went over to Australia, New Zealand, Thailand, had a good time, built my confidence, built my people skills, and then came back and and became a receptionist in a coffee in a in a, in a gym because that's all they had. And I was like, well, I'm I'm in the door now, and that's where it all changed. No way. It's the the start of that's actually incredible because not a lot of teachers become influences like that where, you know, a lot of I at the school I went to, there was maybe the odd one, but most teachers, if you're not doing something, especially in PE, if you're not doing the thing they want you to do, they push you to the side and they put you with the group yeah. of kids who were deemed like, you know, inactive and didn't want to take part in sport. It's very rare I've that you hear like of a PE teacher pushing you to do something like that? Yeah, it's, I was very, very fortunate. And I think, you know, all PE, all, all teachers, all PE teachers, I think, especially nowadays, they're under so much stress all the time that I understand that there's not that a major amount of touch time that they could actually give and all the rest of it. But I think if you could, if they can resonate with you in some way, maybe that teacher had, 
similar social anxiety issues or something like that when they were younger it's always that connection that you suddenly go oh actually I can see a little bit of myself in that person and maybe that was the case and you know it's the same I look back at my lessons and I think why did I love math so much why did I love PT so much why did I why did I love art so much and it's because with all of those lessons the teachers went that extra mile I remember I used to have a, I really struggled with T totals and T numbers which was part of one of our GCSEs curriculums in maths yeah. And my maths teacher said, right, it's meant to be lunchtime after our lesson. If you're happy to stay, I'm happy to stay in my lunchtime to help you. One lesson, one time he gave me his his lunch break to help me with that. And then I ended up getting like a A plus, I think it was, on this particular curriculum. And it's it's things like that. And now I love maths. So it doesn't, it doesn't take much, but it, it is rare because well, they're dealing with 30, 40 kids at a time, multiple different years and there are some little sods out there. So I, was one of them. <laughs> so I get it, you know, and I was a little sod. I used to be the one throwing blue tack and ink around and all that sort of stuff. But it was just, I was a little bit more stealthy with it, I guess. It's just, yeah, it's part and parcel of being a kid, I think. But yeah, it's, I think as I've gotten older, I've come to the realisation that we did put underpaid teachers through absolute hell. Yes, and especially, the ones... especially the ones who would step in, the, the substitute teacher's oh. car. Um, I, I reckon we probably put a few of those in homes. It's, uh, it's, it's not, yeah, it's not I don't nice. want to think about how many I've, I've made quit a job or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's not ideal. But from from there, obviously, you went into, you said, football and boxing, and you did four years of boxing. Did you get, ever have any, any fights or anything like that? Yeah, I had a handful of fights. Um, I won all of the fights that I had, which was great. Um, but... The thing that was, boxing's kind of like the one sport where I'm like, I'm really proud and happy that I got involved with it. But I got involved for the complete wrong reasons to get involved in a sport, especially a contact sport. Just wanted to follow my in my dad's footprints, had, you know, these kind of issues, daddy issues, they call them, where I was like, my parents died when I was young, I want to make my dad proud. And over here, when you walk into an amateur gym, pretty much... All of the coaches who run that amateur gym used to be semi-professionals or professional boxers. So I walk in and as soon as they know my last name, they know that my dad used to be a pro. So you get put on this, which is wonderful, but you get put on this pedestal of they've got potential because they always look at it as like a, a genetics kind of thing. I threw body shots as an amateur, which was very, very rare. So my progression scale was really fast. So after like, I think it was like two or three fights, I was getting put into something called the novice tens, which is like the first step towards the ABAs and then GB and that kind of stuff. And you normally go in there once you've had nine fights and I'd had two. So they were putting me forward for these things. And on one hand, I was like, this is amazing. But on the other hand, I was like this huge fear of losing about really came in and I really didn't want to lose a fight um, and in the end I quit boxing and it was a mixture of not really wanting to do it at that level in the first place didn't really have that passion but also as well I didn't realize until I'd done a little bit of self-exploratory work as I grew up I was like I was actually just as terrified of losing a fight as I was you know not really enjoying the sport so much and it was a, a sobering thought, but then, you know, it taught me a lot about, you know, when we think about ultras and some of the crazy stuff that I do now, I had to really work on that fear of failure. Yeah. 
it's definitely with a sport, especially with contact sports. What I've realised because I've I've done jujitsu myself and things like that is you tend to see a lot of, you know, the kids who come in and are deemed to have potential straight off the bat. There's an ego there straight away because yeah. they don't understand what is required of them on the mat or in a ring. It's quite interesting to see how many actually see it out when they've got that ego, but it doesn't really sound like you had the ego. It was more the fear of Yeah, for me, I had the usual 16, 17, 18-year-old ego, knew how to throw a jab and a right cross, and I was like, I'm an absolute G. But I think one of the things, the same as with jiu-jitsu, is quite special with contact sports. You soon get put in your place. As soon as you're the, the kid who's got an ego... As soon as you get put in the ring and you get your first slap from somebody who's like, look, I'm not having it, essentially, it soon wakes you up and brings you down to earth and you realise that it's a whole different ball game to run around a school, getting in fights and going out drinking and getting in a scrap, you know, going into a ring or stepping onto a mat to roll with somebody who is 100% sober and they still want to own your ass for no apparent reason. There's no rage there. There's just, I'm just going to try and beat you. (laughs) that is it's quite a sobering thought so for me the ego wasn't really too much of an issue it was more I think to be honest more than anything I just hung off the reputation of being a boxer uh, in social circles a little bit too hard which is also a very dangerous game to play yeah there was I remember there being a kid in my school who was the boxer and everyone was scared shitless of him yeah, no you didn't have to do anything. Yeah, yeah. Nobody did, nobody'd seen a single fight, but nobody wanted to give you any trouble whatsoever. But then, you know, you get to an age where you also end up being the person who does all the dodgy stuff to look after everybody. You're, not, you're the one that if somebody else is being an absolute idiot in your social group, you're seen as the one who's supposed to sort it out. So yeah, it's pros it, gets you in some, it gets you in some dangerous situations. <laughs> yeah. So you, you then quit boxing and then what what was it you then went on to so after that got into bodybuilding this was before the lean machine stuff um and then realized i wanted to go traveling i was with my ex-partner at the time let's go over to australia the recession had kicked in i'd lost all my work as a roof tiler so it was a bit of like a what do i want to do kind of moment opposed to just chasing the wage as it had been since i was young uh booked a round the world ticket Flew and then at that, at that time actually decided to do my level two, basic level two fitness instructor qualification because I had this idea of if I go to Australia and love it, I'm going to stay there, um, completely neglecting the fact that I was in a relationship. <laughs> and then uh, spent a couple of months in Australia, a month in New Zealand and a month in Thailand. And I just remember this crazy awakening um, on the plane back playing back from Thailand we had two flights and I wrote planned made notes all the way back of what my CV was going to look like where I was going to take it how I was going to try and get my first steps into the gym I think it was traveling was so perfect for me at that time it it was at a time where you know socially I'd spent all my time on the roof with my dad and another bloke so I was terrible at speaking to people. Every single time they'd asked me to go and get the extension link plugged in by the owner of the house, I would be crapping my pants. And I only had to say, can we plug this in? You know, I was really, really bad people skills wise. 
when I went to the gym, I had big headphones on like I'm wearing now. Didn't really speak to anyone too much if I didn't know them. Um, so traveling really t opened me up in the right ways. So yeah, came back from traveling and proceeded to put my CV on a luminous yellow sunbeam paper and take the, take it to every gym and see absolutely every gym. And then as I went and gave the CVs to all these gyms, first of all, it was bright yellow because it was one of these things back then was like how to make your CVs stand out. And it was like making the brightest piece color. of paper. Yeah. So um, I went and took it to all these gyms and then at the same time got a gift, uh, a guest pass for all of them because I know this can sound really pretentious in some ways because you're like, well, you just need a foot in the door. I also wanted to know what I was going to be walking into work-wise. And one of the best ways to do that is turn up as a member. So there was probably about 12, 12 gyms at the time, I think. You know, some of them were in like hotels and stuff like that. I was like, I don't care if it's a gym. Um, that I went and did a, did a guest pass on a load of them. Not all of them know, and I'm not going to mention names, but six or seven of them came off the list straight away because people were rude when you walked in. The receptionists don't even look up from their phones or the PTs are just bucking heads and just being idiots you know it's like you get it everywhere but I was like there's environments that are motivating and they're inspiring and they push you forward and then there's motivated uh, environments where you're like I'm just not going to fit in here so in the end I narrowed it down to one gym in the end that I really really wanted to be at there was proximity reasons there was progression reasons all sorts so I just um, got a membership and then asked for a job every single day that I went in and trained. <laughs> I can that. imagine what they were like after that. Oh, there's this guy called um, Adam who used to be the, the sales manager. And literally, I would go in every single day and he would be on shifts Monday to Friday. And I've got a job going. It's like, no, I've got nothing, I've got nothing. This was for like two months. And then I walked in one day and he said, there's actually a job going for a receptionist and coffee bar. It's like, I know you want to do fitness stuff. It's like, so I didn't think it would be up your street. So I didn't say anything. And I was like, what time can I have an interview? And then went to Top Man, which is like a shopping place over here, or was, and bought yeah. myself a going out suit, thinking it was going to be an, a, an appropriate interview suit. It's like a slim gray, silver fox kind of suit with a skinny tie and had an interview three hours later. No way. So you were literally just bugging and bugging for this this job with them. And then yeah. the, the, that's the thing. I think if you place something in someone's mind, no matter how small it is, they're eventually, it's always going to come back to you because they, they know how much you've wanted something. Yeah, I think, you know, there's when we talk about advertising in the world nowadays, people say something like some people have to see or hear a message 12 to 15 times for it to even be, for them to resonate with it and stuff like that. I very much believe when you're telling someone, you know, they see 100, 200, 300 people come in a day. If you can plant that seed enough, even if that wasn't going to be the opportunity, at some point, I believe that I would be in that gym having a workout and Adam would have walked up to me and said, look, Sean, gym manager has just told me that we've got an opening coming up. And I would have been the first person in his mind to ask at that time. But the way that it was, I was just asking as I went in and you know, we get the interview and, you know, I've become the best cappuccino maker they've had in a long while. <laughs> no, I worked in coffees. Cappuccino is one of the hardest things to master, I think, in there. 
Literally, it's like it, you get so much. Just got to get that froth right, mate. <laughs> but then, so how long between being a barista and then going to becoming a PT? So I'm terrible with exact time frames because there's this really gray area of, you know, one thing that was really fortunate within our gym, they had government funded programming schemes. So essentially this company called Lifetime who did personal training qualifications, leisure management qualifications, all sorts within the health and fitness sector had this fund where they could come in and you could get qualified while you worked within the industry and essentially the gym funded 50% of it the government funded the other pardon me 50% and all you had was an agreed contract length beyond you qualifying so I had to stay essentially a member of staff for six months after I qualified and I was like it's about five grand's worth of investment you've just put in me. You've given me a level three personal trainers qualification. I decided to go on and do leisure management qualification as well. I was like, I'm going to be here for the foreseeable. You've given me a good opportunity. This kind of started, I think, probably three months after I joined. So after the first month of making coffees and doing sales and walk rounds and that kind of stuff, I started badgering Sean, can I do some gym programs? I'm level two, I can do this, blah, blah, blah. And it was a real like in for me as a personal trainer before I'd even become a personal trainer because I'd already then had two opportunities to step above all the other PTs. First of all, I was on reception. Every PT, every fitness instructor would do everything they possibly could to avoid being on the, on the reception. And I'm sitting there going, but this is the first interaction with every single person who walks through those doors. So I started memorizing names. You scan their card, their name, and their things come up on the system. So when, when they gave me their card, I was like, oh, hi, Sally. Hi, James. How are you getting on today? Blah, blah, blah. So I started memorizing people's names. And then guess what else I was doing? I was memorizing their coffees. So I was like, I'd see them go out. And I'm like, well, I know damn well that Doris is going to come out and she's going to have a flat white and then her husband is going to have a cappuccino. So I'd start making them and then they're there for them as soon as they come out. So simple things like that, you're building your rapport on customer service. And then another thing PTs didn't want to do because they weren't getting paid, essentially, they didn't want to program people. So I would look, you had this big letterbox system where all the gym programs were, which were just essentially free for everybody. And then it's like, I remember seeing one and it just said, leg press, shoulder press, elliptical cross trainer with nothing else on it. And I was like, geez, I was like, is this the level? Like, if this is the level that people are going to for these programs, no wonder they're getting no clients. So and honestly, so the, the, there's some of the best periodization I've ever written in my life on some of those those first programs so I was like highlighting things color coding things going that extra mile giving people the program that they need but then also saying I want to see you back in six weeks time to let me know how you get on with that and half of them I'd actually proceed to take them over to the calendar to rebook their free program again because then you've got that repetition the cycle where they're going to come back and then simple things you just remember what they were doing go and critique Take them very gently when they're in the gym. So look, remember I told you 12 to 15 on this, up it by two and a half kilos next week and see how you get on. You know, that's, that's when it all kind of started. It's literally that you, 
so highly motivated already before you've even got the work and got the clients in. It's ridiculous. But the to have, you know, that understanding of customer service, especially within a personal training industry, is I think absolutely key to the success of it. Because the, I was working in a gym uh, before I moved over here and the the people who I was working with were all of a very high level. And straight away, the first thing I noticed was they knew everyone by name, no matter if they were the client or not, and they knew something about them that they could ask them yep. about. And straight away, that builds rapport with this person so that maybe if they go, oh, this personal trainer isn't for me, they're the first on the list to go to. Yeah, yeah I think... You know, there was a system that nearly got brought into our gym, I think about three and a half years after I joined, where I was actually quite against it because I thought it was making something natural automated and it completely took away that level of customer care. And it was a retention system. So essentially what would happen is, I might butcher this because we didn't obviously end up using it, but somebody comes in and as they swipe their card, all their details come up and then a color will come up red, amber, and green. Green basically means they're a regular member. So they're coming in two to three times a week. And then amber would mean, oh, they're a little bit sporadic. Sometimes they're two or three times a week. Sometimes they're once a month. Red would mean there's a good chance this person's going to leave soon because they've been in once this month, twice last month, once the month before. And then within that, you were then essentially supposed to go and speak to those people who were in the amber to make them into the green column and the people who were in the red try to at least move them towards the amber. And every interaction would then have to be clocked on the computer for the next person who might see them when they come in. So like you say, remembering something about somebody, say, for instance, I was able to walk up to someone and they were doing a great job on the leg press. I'd say great job on the job on the leg press, Graham. Um, pop those weights up next week or make sure that you're driving through your feel, heels or midfoot or whatever. I would go and write that in the column and say, uh, pick up with Graham on his leg press to see how he got on from last week. And then the next person would see it and then they have to build on top of that. And I was like, these systems are obviously in place, left, right and yeah. center nowadays. But I remember saying to the gym manager, I was like, that's really crude because it's making lazy people lazier because they don't have to remember anything. And yeah. it's not, there's a difference between interacting with somebody because you've got passion and you want to help them and you want to take them to the next level. Whereas when you're interacting with someone purely because you want them to keep paying the gym, I'm like, it just felt completely wrong. But it is, it is true. You know, there's, uh, it's different now. But when I was in the industry, unfortunately, there was a lot of people who were in the industry who liked training. And there's a completely different thing and element to liking training yourself and liking training other people and wanting to help and train other people. And that's where I feel like I was kind of fortunate. These guys kind of wanted to turn up, have a workout, walk around the gym, do a little bit of cleaning and live off the fact that they were classified as a highly qualified personal trainer, but didn't really want to do that much personal training. Whereas I was like, I'll do everything that I can. Yeah, see, for me, this is that's why I eventually ended up not doing the personal training side of it was because I mistook the enjoying training and loving training for the training other people. I put them in the same category when they're completely the opposite. And as much as I did enjoy some of it, there was a lot of it that 
especially the in-person stuff i was just like this this isn't me it's not how i you know it's not the kind of work i want to do which yeah i think a lot of personal trainers still now and however many years on making that same mistake of they mistake a love for training as a love for coaching which are two completely different things yeah and i think also as well a lot of there's a lot of personal trainers in the industry who are slaves to the wage you know they still look at it and go it's 40 quid an hour whatever it might well be um but they're earning and i see you know i don't go in luckily for me personally i don't go in very many leisure centers or gyms or anything like that corporation gyms and stuff anymore but i the amount of times that i would see personal trainers literally stood there and they're dead in the eyes like absolutely dead in the eyes hating this session and all they're thinking about is their wage and it's essentially the same in many many different businesses i guess but the problem is when it's face front in you know you are right in front of a client one-to-one in the middle of a gym where there's meant to be motivation inspiration if you're standing there hating life checking your phone or something like that it just stands out like a sore thumb and it's a shame um because there's a lot of room for incredibly good pts out there who actually want to do it and unfortunately there's a lot of floor space taken up by people who are absolutely hating life and just hoping for an extra, you know, 40 quid here and there to be able to go out and get pissed at the weekend. For sure. Like there's, there's so many there that are just, they have the qualifications, which is why they're in the role, but they wouldn't put as much effort in as the person who maybe doesn't have the level three yet and is, would put yeah. everything into it. But so yeah, where, also from, as well though, go on. Go on, sorry, one of the things I was going to say, and also as well, one of the things that happens with personal trainers is that it's really important to distinguish the difference as well, because there is also as well a lot of people that I've met in my career who want to work within a gym and they want to teach classes and they want to communicate with people, but they don't want to PT. So there's some people who have had to get the qualification, and I totally understand that you need it in, a, in, in these environments, but there is also as well the room for those people who are passionate about the industry, you know, and they have dreams of becoming a manager of a gym and stuff like that. So I do get it from the other side of the coin, but generally speaking or broadly speaking, that's normally the way that I see it. Yeah. So you became a PT, you got your clients. Where did the lean machine start from there? <laughs> so John was my business partner and best friend. He was over in Australia traveling. Um, he needed it. Like John was in so many ways, a wonderful human being, but he was so soft that he was, he'd get walked all over in life, essentially. He was a carpenter back in the day, um, working for absolute pennies because the people paying him could get away with it. Uh, he was the guy that would go out on a night out. He would drive everybody to Norwich from Attleboro, like 20 miles drop everybody off, then he would drive his own car home and then get the train up to come and meet everyone to make sure everyone was happy. Or he would come out and be the taxi, not drink himself so he could keep everybody happy. So that was kind of where he was at. And I remember when he went traveling, the last thing I said to him, I literally was like, if you learn nothing when you go traveling, learn to fucking say no to people <laughs> was basically what I said. And off he went, um, had an amazing time, lived in Australia for like eight months, I believe. And then just randomly, we had a conversation about him coming back. And he just said, look, it's like, I know you're in the fitness industry now. 
he'd found like a love for training and fitness and was doing it. I think he was doing like a little bit of MMA out there as well. Um, and was like, how would you feel if I was to be involved in the industry as well? And I was like, well, I'll see if I can get you a job. So spoke to my manager at the time and said, look, one of my friends is really keen, wants to get into the industry, would love to follow the path that I've been on. Um, have we got anything exactly the same? They gave him a receptionist role. And I was like, customer service, just nail customer service, and you'll be fine. Comes in, he gets probably halfway through his level two, because he gets to do level two before it's free. And um, he says to me, oh, I've got this idea for YouTube. And I'm like, I watch YouTube for people doing varial flips, kick flips, and crazy stuff on skateboards, or animals just being really weird and random. Like YouTube was so new. I think it was about two or three years old at that point when, when we first spoke about it. And essentially, the idea was, how do we gain clients in the gym without essentially having to walk up to them and say, hey, do you want a PT session? Which sounds like a weird chat line. Or critiquing people in an environment that was socially quite uncomfortable for most people. So say you're doing the squat wrong, you might, maybe 10% of people would like you to go up to them and go, look, you know, try open your knees a little bit more, squat three hits, blah, 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 whatever it may, may well be. But 90% of people are already in a very, very defensive yeah. environment or mentally or mental state where they're like, well, I don't really need somebody coming up to me and making me feel crap about what I'm already feeling quite uncomfortable about. So we had this kind of angle of what we'll do is we'll create some YouTube videos of how to work on your squat, how to work on your lunge, how to plan your meals and stuff like that, looking at basic nutrition advice, anything that we would normally give to clients who are paying clients. Let's just chuck that on YouTube and we might get a couple of extra clients in the gym. Again, majorly naive because YouTube didn't just exist in Norwich in, in a tiny little, tiny little county in the UK. <laughs> um, so it kind of just started as this little bit of fun and a side thing. And it became for both of us, you know, when I look back now, a bit of an obsession, you know, it was a case of we couldn't use music or have any environment with music on because all your videos would basically just be muted back then on YouTube. So we got permission from the owners of the club that at 10 PM when the club closed, we could stay on and film, film YouTube videos and workout stuff without music so the gym would be completely silent we'd stay there from 10 till about half 11 midnight filming content then go back to work the next day edit in our lunch breaks or if we had the day off afternoon off we'd edit then and we just became this machine of creating free pieces of content every week um it was like monday thursday sunday upload 6 p.m every week we just create it's really wild that because at the time, obviously, YouTube had no, there was no sense of making an income from it. It was literally just for the clients in the gym. And it's just create. To have that consistency throughout, even when there's no real end goal to it, is, you know, it just shows the drive that you had just to be a PT, not to be yeah. this big thing that you are now. I think the thing is, is it kind of, it was a mixture of wanting and needing more clients and wanting to step out and do something different to what other people were doing. But also as well, you know, one of the things that we're constantly preaching to our clients is consistency and a level of discipline, not in like a militant way, but you've, you've got to show up. If you say you're going to show up, show up at that time. You know, one of the biggest gripes that I had with PT clients were people who wouldn't show up and wouldn't text me 
or people who wouldn't show up and they would text me two minutes before. And I'd be like, that's really fucking annoying. Just, just be, just show up when you, if you're not going to show up, give me the, give me the, you know, respect enough to say that you're not coming or something like that. So we kind of just approached this YouTube thing the same, same way. We're like, well, it's not going to do anything unless we're consistent. You know, it's not, we don't think it's going to make us a ton of money or anything like that. But at the end of the day, we could get two wins here. First of all, we create this huge catalog of content that we can pass on to any of our clients at any point. Second of all, you get to work on a camera and create editing skills and your presentation skills. And also, this is quite embarrassing to say, we got to like solidify some of the knowledge that we were learning. So they're probably all privated now because they're really awkward videos. But there's videos in the in the early days that we would film around subjects that we'd heard on like Phil Learning's podcast or Paul Mort's old podcast and stuff like that when we were younger, where we're like, we're trying to understand the real mechanisms of intermittent fasting and how it works and what it is, this, that, and the other. So we'd create a video on it and put ourselves really on the spot talking about the very limited knowledge that we might have at that point, essentially just re rewording a, a, a purpose piece of content that somebody else may have made. But it just helped teach us as well as coaches and develop us as coaches because we're like, well, just pick a subject that you kind of know a little bit about and then just see how you get on. <laughs> yeah, it's the I watched the first video, the Welcome to the Lean Machine. Oh video. my god. <laughs> I watched that the other day and it did make me laugh because I feel like you're talking a lot through awkwardness and John just has no idea what to say. And then at yeah. the end of it, you both go. That was so fucking awkward. Yeah, like, if you're so happy to be done with it, and yeah, it like, was. It was awful. Yeah, it's. It, there's just, and then you've obviously gone through this progression with the channel as well, where you've you've gotten better at producing the videos at what you're trying to say. Like, you know, you now you went to your CrossFit and that kind of thing. But initially, it was more for the I, like. It's a, I, I'm not putting you on the spot with this, but it felt like more for the clicks in terms of what people 100%. wanted to see. Where, like, so some examples, there was a six-minute fat burn video. There was a how to shift baby weight video, a three-minute oh, fat yeah. burning super circuit. Like these very clickbaity words were before they were clickbait. Yeah, so when we were looking for titles, looking for ideas, all the rest of it, we had two things. There was a couple of people in John's family who'd been in YouTube for completely different reasons with makeup and lifestyle and everything like that. And they're like, look at what the Americans are doing because the Americans are two years ahead of the UK market. So we're looking and going, everyone's topless. Everyone's topless. And then we have this conversation where we're like, do we start doing topless videos? And we cringe now when we think about it, but quite honestly, I don't think we would have got to where we got to with the channel specifically had we not just done the topless content and then next thing you look for content ideas and title ideas and everything like that because the ideas do start to dry up you know you can't just talk about the basic boring stuff and expect people to hear um so there was like for about two years once i think it got the i think the channel got to about 20 25,000 subscribers relatively quickly that put us on this radar of social media talent agencies and other people who were looking at our channel, giving advice and telling us what to do to help it grow and everything like that. And we just went on this 
wheel of creating anything that said abs or fat in it or fat loss um, because it was the content that everybody was consuming. And that was probably for me personally, the first time that I fell into this new world of social media and it started to become less about the client and more about the click. And this was all because we wanted to get the channel to like 70,000 subscribers because we were told by this agency that they would, they would help us grow the channel at that point. They wouldn't put any time or effort or money or anything like that into it until it got to that point. And we're like, okay, so other people are starting to think that this could be like a really cool thing. And it just, it's crazy how fast it completely detached from the reasons in which that we actually started it for, which is part of that, you know, you see the progression later on where we suddenly go, oh, I can't be asked. I'm not going to do topless videos all the time anymore. And then we get into CrossFit and then everybody's semi-naked. So it's mental. <laughs> yeah, it's the, I was going to ask, what point were you just like, I can't be asked with this kind of content. I want to make the content that is for me. And what was that content for you? So there was a point where, because what we would do is after it progressed quite well, one of the family members had a studio and they gave us a back room that we could film in. And I think it was like the third or fourth week in a row, we turned up and we we're like, no ideas. Like no ideas for content. But back then, literally, if we stood topless in front of the camera and spoke about what we ate that day, it would have done well. So it wasn't like it was hard, but we still had no ideas. And um, we settled on another, it was another like a, a ab workout. And I'm jumping around doing hill climbers and push-ups and stuff. And, I, and all the way through, I'm going, this is going to do absolutely nothing if they're not eating right at all. And um we just had a conversation. It was just like, this is just not fun anymore. And it's, it's the same with many things. If you're doing it for the wrong reasons or something so detached from the reasons as to why you started or what you wanted to achieve from it, it does just feel like a phony. And yeah, we just said, we're like, right, from now on, don't care what the channel does. We're personal trainers first and foremost. We're going to start giving actual information and give people advice. Did a couple of um, like information-based videos. I can't remember what they were now. I think one was about how to set your macros and calories and stuff like that. One might have been on circadian rhythm or something. I can't remember what it was now. But we did it with clothes on and it got about 40% of the traction as the rest of the videos. And that hurt. But then that made us really passionate in the opposite way. We're like, well, we're going to turn everyone around and we're going to do it this way and continue to do it this way. And people are going to respect us and want our message because of what we're saying, not because of what we look like. But unfortunately, we were naive. You know, YouTube doesn't work like that. Or it does now. Yeah. It didn't back then. It's definitely like it's one of those. It kind of it must have felt like a bit of a bruised ego with the, you know, the drop in the views kind of thing. But yeah, ultimately, you were doing exactly what you wanted to do with that when you got to it. And that's exactly, exactly that what is. you wanted to be. When when you spend so much time focusing on the views, you lose track of the reasons why you're doing it. And we, it was literally like you can look back in our um, YouTube calendar and there's two major things that changed everything. First of all, when we moved over to CrossFit from a predominantly bodybuilding centric space, things changed phenomenally in terms of the views. But also 
when we went from just doing the click stuff to not being topless all the time and doing actual information-based stuff, I've used literally half overnight. You know, we were getting 60, 70, 80,000 views on a video to begin with, like per week in these vlogs. And we're like, this is banging. And you get like 10K. Wow. But I would like, even now, like some people call us like the OGs of YouTube and they're like, oh, you've got, you know, over 400 odd thousand subscribers. And like, we might put a video up and it does 3,000 views. And I'm like, I don't look at, the subscribers is even relevant anymore because I'm like those people, some of those people were built on a Taylor Launtner abs workout from 10 years ago. <laughs> they don't yeah. care about the fact that I'm a father, do a little bit of ultra running jujitsu now. So it's like, they're so far removed from what's relevant. And it's like, if I was looking at the subscribers and the viewership on a video now, I'd be highly depressed. Um, so you suddenly realize that, you know, it's all about purpose and passion first. I think now YouTube isn't YouTube of 10, maybe 10 years ago, maybe a little bit less was the money maker. It's how people made money. Whereas now it's more, this is where you see me. I have all yeah. these other things that you can yeah. reach me at and, you know, you can buy my merch, you can buy my programming, you can, you know, use my link to buy this thing. It's now just a, a it feels like a middleman. Mm. So YouTube, I am going to predict might be wrong. One of two things is going to happen with YouTube over the next few years. You're either going to see the resurgence of it in a retro sense. So you'll see loads of people suddenly start using, because I've already started to see it, a lot of people who have built their platforms like Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat or whatever, you'll see these people now suddenly starting to do long-form content on YouTube. And I feel like it might be consumed or regenerated in a way that's like, a retro thing of now the millennials going, oh yeah, I watch YouTube, I don't watch Netflix and that kind of stuff. I feel like there's either that's going to happen or unfortunately the other complete opposite end of the coin that I can see happening as much like you say, in the next five years, it's purely, purely just going to be a funnel for people whereby you add a little bit more personality, you give a little bit more than you did somewhere else but it's always a hook to come and do something or go here with me. I'm going to, I'm going to sell you this. I'm going to do that because there was a point with YouTube where literally you could not open a YouTube video without somebody who's being paid thousands of pounds to talk about a product they've never used before, you know, and it's, it's teetering on that edge of potentially going either of those two ways, but who knows? It's going to be, it's definitely going to be interesting to see, but I'd like to go back to sort of, uh, one of the transitions in the lean machine. So obviously you went from that bodybuilding space and then all of a sudden it was very CrossFit focused. How did yeah. that come about? Really randomly, we were sponsored by a supplement company um, at the time who wanted to take all of his athletes away to this place called Mike's in Marbella. Proper spitting sawdust, had like a gym Ninja Warrior course, a swimming pool, a CrossFit box, had all sorts. Oh, hang on, I think I'm going to sneeze. No, I'm not. Um, and we went out there as the only guys who did fitness stuff. And I remember, I'll never forget the day. We literally walk into this gym and I'm like, I can hear things being thrown around. Like, what the hell is that? So then I just follow the noise. And it was one of our really close friends now, Zach George, who's like one of the best CrossFit athletes in the UK. Um, 
and a guy called Sammy Pullen, who was another really good CrossFit athlete at the time, they glazed up. Like they've just finished a, a sweaty ass shoulder centric wad and they are jacked. They're both shredded out of their eyeballs. They're sweating. And they're just like the nicest guys we've ever met. Like really, really welcoming. And I'm like, I want to look like that. Because at the time, all the lifting I've been doing is static. And I come from, obviously, I unlocked this cardio potential from the running when I was younger and then boxing. And then I was like, I've never found something that's like this hybrid of being able to be fit, but also being able to be strong. And then um, we spent the whole weekend and just said, whatever your workouts are, we'll just do them. Because they were getting ready for a competition called Battle of Britain or Battle of the Beasts at the time, which is like an old CrossFit thing. So we're doing wall balls. We were doing snatches. They tried to teach us how to do toes to bar. And I came away from it and was like, I remember I was sitting in the taxi on the way back to the airport Googling where the CrossFit boxes were, where I lived. Because I just, yeah, it was it was just this, it set off this fire, you know, where I was like, that's the kind of training that I want to be doing. And much like you've probably already started to realize, I don't really t- tentatively get involved in things. When I'm in, I'm all in. So yeah. I was like straight in got back the next day, went and got a membership and did a session at the box. And then it was essentially, which sounds really naive now when I think about it, my goal was to become a CrossFit Games athlete. That was it. I was in. That's where I'm going. The thing is, though, you got into it in a time that felt like CrossFit was still pretty new. Like in the UK, we didn't really, it wasn't a thing. It's only in recent years. Boom. It was kind of just something that was hated on by the gym industry. The same as me. Like my, my, my like impression of CrossFit wasn't great because not long before that a local CrossFit box had invited us down or asked us to go down essentially to take a vlog do a workout with them to advertise their gym for them and we're like yeah we'll do something for the local community he just gave us a workout that was not just a workout it was a way for him to prove just how much better he was and it was like doing thrusters and butterfly pull-ups, stuff that we were never going to do these things because we weren't in that space. And it was a video that just really put me off CrossFit, unfortunately, because I was like, I was going, they're not even proper pull-ups for a start. And <laughs> he's putting these stupid exercises together. And he had a huge e- ego and um, all came across like that. So I had a pretty poor impression. And then when we first, when we, then we met those guys, I was just lucky because had I not met those guys in that circumstance, I probably never would have done CrossFit because of my first impression was so bad. Um, but yeah, when we first started, ooh, trying to put CrossFit content on a bodybuilding channel, that went down like a little You're asking loop. for fire. You're asking yeah, for fire. Oh yeah, it was, it was uh, hilarious. Like we knew the second we started putting CrossFit content up, we just came to terms with the fact we were like, that's probably, I know it sounds graphic, but we were like, that's probably the end of the lean machines is growth. Like when you have like a growth focus with your channel for so long, we were, we were probably at about 300,000 subscribers. And with the trajectory and the way that we were building content, like subscribers, we were still gaining subscribers, even though the views had gone down from doing the non-topless content, because people still wanted to consume it. And we were bringing in new people. We had this trajectory. We were like, right, so the goal is to be by at half a million by the end of next year. And then we're going to build it towards a million. We genuinely had this idea that the channel 
at its prospective growth with the amount of views and the amount of content that you had, it was then more viewership every single time you put content up, blah, 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 because they saw you a bigger back catalogue. We had this trajectory that we'd get to a million, was what the goal was going to be. And we very swiftly realized that within three months of doing CrossFit content, we're like, this is now just a CrossFit vlog channel. It's not going to grow. It's not going to grow fast. It's not going to, it's not going to accelerate in the way that it was. Um, so we, that was a bit of a bit of pill to swallow, but at the same time we went, I'm enjoying CrossFit more and show it sharing CrossFit more than I was sharing that content that we were doing beforehand. And if people don't like it, we're still personal trainers. See, I, <laughs> Simple as that. I actually thought the the cross like the CrossFit content was better than the mm. previous content because it was yeah. more it was more of you for one and also yeah. there was more of you got to see this community that no one else saw like you never see it in a gym a gym is usually headphones in you go in you do your bench press you leave whereas you were going to these True. crossfit boxes you know everyone by name you're all mates and you get to see just this like amazing community that we've just we've never had in the uk yeah unfortunately you know you're a small percentage of people like yeah with there was still so much resistance you know it's like it's so weird like if i say it now people are like that doesn't make sense crossfit's crossfit nobody cares you know it's so established now and also as well the aesthetic that comes with crossfit when you see the top level games athletes people are like i aspire to look like that now with my fitness training you know people who are doing bodybuilding splits want to look like crossfit athletes so you can kind of see that synergy now with the approach and people have relaxed but back then it it took so long for people to understand that we weren't telling them they had to do CrossFit. They just like sat there behind this shielded ego going, I'm not going to do CrossFit. I'm not going to do CrossFit. And it's like, just, just hate on it just for no apparent reason, because it was so far removed from what they were used to and what they were probably partaking in um, that in the end, it did get to the point where people were like, um, consuming our content more because they liked our personality and the story and the transitions and the editorial skills. And they liked that. And then it didn't matter whether they connected with CrossFit or not. They just watched us for us. But unfortunately, we were also at a point in our life where it got quite unentertaining. You know, like we'd, we'd got kind of bored of flying all over the world, doing all this crazy stuff and going to Disney World and Hawaii and all this sort of stuff. We were at a point where we're like, we're both in established relationships. We're not really asked about trying to play the field and anything like that. We don't really want to be flying all over the world and doing crazy stuff that unfortunately, at the same time as people wanted to invest in our personalities more and our lives more, they got more relaxed. Whereas like if we were two single lads going out and doing whatever the bloody hell we liked and adventuring and seeing the world, the, the channel probably would have gone on this continued trajectory. But it's just, you know, that's just, you know, them the breaks, as we always say, you know, we wouldn't yeah. change anything for, for the world right now. But when you look back, you're like, well, there were circumstances that made it very fortunate for us with the channel. But there's also certain things where you're like timing wise, if it was different, it would have been a completely different result. So, yeah. So, obviously, you got into CrossFit, and that was probably that started when was it? Three years ago, four years ago? Yeah, I think. Well, I think it's probably four and a half, five years ago. Yeah, probably. Okay. So you did that, 
And then this past year, you started running, got back into running, should I say. But you've taken it to the absolute extreme, gone from 6K <laughs> cross country to 250K yeah, ultras. It's a bit of a jump, isn't it? Yeah. So talk to me about how you got into ultra running because you didn't just go for a marathon. You straight straight off the bat was ultras. Yeah. So during COVID, like COVID was a horrible time in a multiple multitude of ways for a lot of people. But I always say that COVID for me, that time was probably the start of me in terms of the person that this, I've had this, I call it like it's a, a continuous level of growth, both personally, professionally, and generally over the last two and a half years. And it all started in COVID because where even though we'd had these conscious decisions and changes of direction and we felt like we were really in control with the YouTube stuff, it had actually been at that point, up until that point, seven and a half to eight years of consistently just doing something. And it might not seem like a big deal, but we didn't realize that like we didn't even realize we'd built a business. We were just creating YouTube content, having a laugh, getting paid, doing our thing. There was no business prowess. We didn't have a clue how much money was in the bank. We didn't know where we wanted it to go. There was like, for somebody who's who really thrives on having consistency, a level of discipline in their day and plans and goals and everything like that, I was completely on the day-to-day so far removed from the type of person that I needed to be to feel comfortable and safe I guess and excited so there was that feeling um that I was confronted with in COVID and I was like great nice one appreciate that um and I also had this huge fear of failure again so that kind of was what brought around me writing a second book we'd obviously done a book for the lean machines for a big publishers called headline and it was great and it gave us the financial security to take the YouTube thing full-time back in the day but I had this huge thing of, I really want to do seminars. I really want to stand up in front of people and help them. But I felt like I didn't have enough to say, which is always, always the fear. It's like, it's not even choking on your words anymore. It's the fear of being like, seeing loads of bored faces and people leaving the room is always the thing. So I was like, well, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to just write a book because then I don't have to see them leaving the room. They just don't buy the book if they don't want it. Um, and what it gave me the opportunity to do was, first of all, face something that I'm terrible at, which is writing, being dyslexic as hell. My words always get mixed up. I get my E's and A's the wrong way around, all sorts of stupid grammatical issues that I knew that I was going to face. But it was something that I went, I'm going to do 15 minutes every single day until the book's written, which swiftly, within an hour, turned into the first mind dump was like two and a half hours of writing. I think I had all of my chapters headers already written down I completed the intro about me and I was already halfway through the first chapter and I was like wow this is this is flow so I started writing a book to work on that side of things and then as the confidence built with that it allowed me to or move me into this space mentally where I could actually ask questions about everything that I was doing and I have I'm fortunate enough to have a full gym at home. So absolutely every element of CrossFit could have been taken up. I could do anything CrossFit related at home apart from ring muscle ups. That's probably the only thing that I couldn't do at home. And 
I was faced with this unfortunate reality where I was like, we've been in lockdown for two months at this point, and I haven't done a single CrossFit centric workout. So then it started this conversation of, am I still enjoying it? Am I doing it because of the content or uh, have I got any aspirations to take it any further? And I just suddenly realized that I was like, I enjoy CrossFit for the community, the people that I get to hang out with. And I like some of the workouts, but I actually had a real problem with some of the structures, <laughs> which I didn't even realize, like from a professional standpoint as a PT, I suddenly became really not anti, but really opinionated and was like, actually, do I think it's really a good idea to allow somebody who's never had any experience of CrossFit to be trying to do a snatch in any any respect, let alone at the end of a workout, put in a high risk exercise at the end of a workout? Do I think they should be doing 75 snatches for time and calling it Randy? Do I do I think that's a good idea? And I suddenly realized that what I like is about 60% of what CrossFit is. And the 40% that I didn't like, I actually hated. And I then suddenly went, oh, okay, cool. So my training is going to become more of like a hybrid style. How does that hybrid style look? And I started realizing that what I wanted was a challenge, something that was undefinable by time, distance, weight, whatever it may well be. Because CrossFit, Fran sucks, but you know it's going to suck for three minutes. You know, doing a 20-minute AMRAP, you know it's going to suck for 20 minutes and it's going to be the first six minutes where you go out like an idiot, then you have to hold on for 14 minutes. But it's all definable. And I just had this urge to do something that was like, well, I don't even know if I can finish that. So I'd never run a marathon, but there was a bit of ego. I was like, everyone runs a marathon. I'm going to run an ultra because that sounds cooler. So I decided to do a 50K ultra, which was only like eight kilometers more than a marathon um, and raise some money for Mind Cherry because we were already starting to hear a lot of mental health issues and the potential fall out of people being stuck in their homes for so long so I was like well let's just do let's do that um and that went horrifically you know it was the it I went out for 25k at my, my 10k pace not a good idea for 50k um and the same it's the same classic story that a lot of people have with these kind of things I learned more about myself in that last six to eight kilometers of that 50k than I'd learned in the last 10 years because that voice gets loud and there, and you've got nothing left, no physical or mental reserves to fight it. So like all these things and distractions that we have and we put in place to stop us really thinking and connecting with how we feel, I had none of that at that point. And I suddenly went, oh, okay, this is what it's about, is it? And, and that's, that's where it started. So I did that at the end of, end of June or the start of June last year. Um, and because of the social media thing, it got a lot of traction from people. And then a company called UltraX, uh, who are like an adventure ultra running company, they do everything from 50Ks up to 250Ks. Um, kindly, I say kindly, come in and said, would you be up for doing like a collaboration with us? You know, we've just seen that you've done like a 50K. Would you like to do something a bit further? And I'm like, how much further? Because at this point, I'm not happy about how painful the 50K was. And they said, well, pick any of our 250K races. And I'm going, I've just crawled around one. 
of a five-legger. Um, but honestly, the the feeling that I had when I received that message about doing it was literally 50-50 split of this is absolutely outrageous and outlandish. Who am I to even want to do this? All the negativity you could imagine. At the same time, as if I could have laced my trainers up and gone for a run, then I would have done it. It was it was such like it was such a pure emotion of like this positive and negative energy that just turned into this ball of I have to do it. I have to run towards this this fire. Um, and the option was because of timing wise, they had a space that I could have gone to Jordan, which is funny enough the run I've just done, which would have been two and a half months later. And then they had a space in Sri Lanka, which was six months later, being in March. And I went, I'm never going to go and do a race on, on the desert. All I knew at that point was MDS, Marathon to Saab, that everybody talks about, like everybody dies and it's a horrific run and blah, blah, blah. So I thought, well, I'll do Sri Lanka. Gives me a little bit of time. Um, and then that's when it started. And suddenly I'm doing multi-stage ultras. <laughs> The, the, I think the, cause I started running during lockdown as well, but I, the common theme with runners who, you know, just started beginners, they don't know how to pace themselves. And I think going from that co CrossFit background as well, it can be quite dangerous where yeah. everything is just balls to the walls, no matter what. Like yeah. for me, I stupidly, I would do, you know, a nine mile run at 7.30 pace. That I could, I was, you know, I was flatlining heart rate at like 180 the entire run because I just had no idea of, you know, training zones or anything like that. So, why did you start with that kind of thing? So, obviously, being a coach, I knew the very basics. I certainly won't say that I valued zone two at that point. I was like, zone two, come on. Nobody does zone two, stupid. But you do some research and you realize, it now, like give it, it's it's getting more traction now. Give it another year and every zone two will be the no, new workout. You know, there's already, there's already cycle desks, there's uh, treadmill desks and people look at them and view them because they're like, are oh, these for these people who can't stop working? And so people get their zone two in because it's bloody boring. You know, it's that low and slow, easy conversational space. And it's growing and growing and growing because every athlete from explosive sprinters all the way down to these methodical, I don't know, golf players who walk around all day, I uh, do zone two, build that aerobic base. Everybody wants to build that aerobic base now. So found out a little bit more about it. Um, and then also as well, I'd spent a lot of time in my youth and, you know, running had always been something I'd done five to 10 K maximum, mind you. But I would use a lot of my runs as thinking time. So I'm somebody who, if I have a problem, good, bad, or ugly, if there's a solution that I need, I move. Movement allows me to process my thoughts more effectively. So I would go on some of these easier runs. I would go on some of these really hard runs. But what I didn't really necessarily know how to do was go from running an easy 10K to running 50 kilometers and then replicating it the very next day. And how does that look as a nutritional protocol? How does that look as a training protocol? And I started, I remember I started writing a periodization for my run. And 
I got to about two months in and then got paranoid because it was so, it was so far beyond something I'd ever done that I was like, I don't even know if that's going to work. Like I didn't, I didn't even know if I could finish it. I'm writing a program for something that's got so many uncontrollable factors and I'm so inexperienced in this space. So it was like, said to Ultrax, um, put me in contact with somebody who does this all the time. And then <clears throat> lo and behold, my coach, Sam from Kings of the Wild Frontier comes in and he admittedly, his periodization looked relatively similar to mine. Not exactly the same, but relatively similar, which was like my first like, all right, I don't know roughly what I'm doing here. <laughs> um, there was more focus on zone two than what I put in, I think was the main thing. And there was more strides um, than what I put in, but everything else was pretty much on this 10% rule. Um, and then I brought in Luke, who was uh, a really high level sports nutrition coach. He's got all sorts of qualifications, spent probably more time working on degrees than he has been eating hot dinners. I don't know. He's very, very intelligent. Um, and he came on and worked on everything fuel and strategy wise. So I literally just said to myself, I'm going to outsource the lot. So all I have to do is become robotic for the next four and a half months. Tell me how many runs I've got to do. Tell me what I've got to do. And I'm just going to do it. And it's the best decision ever made. It's definitely the thing with running is people look at it and just sort of judge it from what they see. And it's just, oh, people go out and run. But there's yep. so much, so many technicalities. Like, have you got your nutritional protocol down to a T? Have you, you know, done enough zone two? Have you done enough tempo work? Have you done your strides? Like, what's your recovery like? There's so many yep. different things. And the thing I started to realize when I really got into running was that it can be quite expensive for the general population. Oh, like obviously, yeah. in your in your situation, like you, you know, you were in contact with UltraX, that kind of thing. But for the general population, how would you like? What would you advise them to do if they were to look into getting into running in terms of maybe ultras or marathons or anything like that? Um, there's kind of like a one thing that I'm realizing now that it kind of depends on where you're starting. Like I always encourage anybody if they can financially justify it to get a coach no matter what level they're at if you if you're somebody who just wants to run a 5k and you're like i just hate it it's just this is just a challenge you know i do a tlm run plan costs it 14 bucks a month and it does run periodization all the way up to you know essentially half marathon if you want to do it that's a pretty easy starting point and there's couch to 5ks and stuff like that you can do but i would always encourage somebody regardless of the level to invest in a coach at some point because I think out of everything else that I've ever been involved in, the misconceptions that come with running are higher than anything else. First of all, there's the, it's just running. We can all run 100%. There's barely a, a single able-bodied person that I could pass in the street today who I could say to them, run 10 meters. And they would go, I don't know how to run. You know, they would all know how to run. They would just do it in their way, whether it was favorable or not, they would be able to physically run. And because of that, we have this level of understanding that makes us feel like we don't need any help with it. And for me, if I tried to do my 250 in the way that I did my 50, I would have ended up with some probably very long-term injuries. And I think just a little bit of help and support on the very, very basics, cadence, knee drive, chest position, 
what you should be checking back in on technique wise, what you should be feeling like energy zones. You can do all of that in a couple of months and be absolutely solid for the rest of your running career. Um, and I think the investment side of things is just a case of how much do you value yourself in that space? You know, if you're never going to become a runner, not really ever asked, don't bother spending the money because it's not going to go anywhere. But if you want to learn that little bit more to go, or might run a marathon at some point in the future, those kind of things are going to be invaluable. Yeah, it's, I think for those who get into running, it's, it can be quite daunting because it's, you feel like you could know everything about running, but then all of yep. a sudden you know nothing. And just one person I would like to sort of bring up, I don't know, you might know them because obviously you work with Pure Sport, um, Becky Briggs. Yep. So she was she was my running coach for a little bit, and she works with that. Oh, she's got uh, a little run. bit of caliber. Uh, just just <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I know, literally, it's, it's, it's insane. But she, so she works with Run NRG, and yep. they, what they're doing for the for runners is incredible, I think, because they're offering plans, like they're offering the one-to-one coaching and that kind of thing, which can build up in price. But they're also offering these plans where I think it's like £10 for a 16-week plan based on the pace you want to do your marathon or whatever else. And I think the thing that's going to be more common now is just making it more accessible, making doing marathons and things like that more accessible to, you know, everyone. Yeah, I think... The way that the world's going, which is still, don't get me wrong, a marathon is a huge, huge challenge for so many people in the world. But I genuinely feel like you've got, you know, even over in your end at the moment, Ned Brockman, just run the width of Australia, averaging 100 kilometers per day for 47 days. You're seeing human feats that are 10 years ago incomprehensible, or if they were done, Nobody was talking about it because there was this weird point, point, point of a 1% of the world doing these things that they, people were just like, nope, we don't need to see that. That's just somebody who's got deep psychological issues. We're going <laughs> to leave them to do their weird stuff in the corner. Because we're seeing more and more and more and more of that, I genuinely believe that before long, the people who are at their 10Ks and their half marathons kind of doing their thing, a marathon is just going to be, well, it's just a marathon. And with the right education and the right basics behind you, like I still, you know, I've got a couple of friends now where they're like, so I guess you'd just go and run a marathon on a Monday if you wanted to. And I'm like, yeah. And it's not because I'm cocky or arrogant or over the top. It's the fact that I'm like, well, the way that I've primed and trained my body with the basic knowledge that you need and understanding with running, I could go out and run a marathon now. And that's where I feel like, if it's done right, I think that's what people are going to end up getting to. I feel like the marathon is, it, in speed-wise, you know, seeing Kipchoge doing the speeds, that's where that's like the oh my god of what just completing a marathon used to be is, you know, is how fast can people do it now? But the actual distance, I feel like we're getting more or becoming more and more awake or conscious to the fact that we're like, I probably could do that distance. And I think it's a really exciting space to be and also terrifying because you don't know, you know, I might get another Will Goose 48 marathons in 30 days over in the UK and stuff. And it's when it goes to that crazy levels, I think it's mental in some ways mm -hmm. and it switches some people but off. But on the other side of it, it also motivates and inspires people to go, well, they can do 48. I can probably do one. Yeah. It's the, I'm not sure if you're aware of him. Have you heard of the hardest geezer? 
No. Oh, mate, you have, have a look at him on Instagram after this. So he was he's the first person to run from Asia to to the UK unassisted and did it in 68 days. So ran from the Asian part of Istanbul all the way up to the uh, to the UK. It, yeah, 68 days it was. And he at the minute, so he's just announced a couple of weeks ago that he is running the length of Africa from north to south. Jeez. Yeah, it's unreal. It's, it, and the only part of that that I see as potentially worrying, um, not that these people are doing it for the wrong reasons, but it's like, it's a case of as long as they're being done for purity and that passion and they're doing it for the right reasons, amazing. But there is also that fear in this in the in the charity world nowadays that if I was to turn around, I would actually it sounds really stupid because it's still a great challenge. But if I was to turn around and go, I'm gonna run a marathon for charity, it almost doesn't have that shine anymore because you're like, well, <laughs> some guys just ran from Asia to the UK. <laughs> For charity, you know, do you know what I mean? It's like that comparison thing sometimes is really quite hard to stay away from. But it's still, you know, some of the things like you say, that kind of stuff is mental. People are doing phenomenal things. And I think having just entered this ultra world, just tentatively for me, you know, it's, it's I've just elevated to this next run of the ladder. When I speak to people, they're like, that is utterly wild what you've just done. And it's crazy because it's it's exciting for me at the moment because it's still so new that I still go, it is wild. It's absolutely mental because a year and a half ago, I would never have dreamt of even running a 50, let alone having, you know, fast forward now, I've done two 250s this year and a 50, and then I'm going to pop off to go and run a 50 with my mate next week just to help him out. You know, like, and it's it's mental... It's been a lot of hard work, don't get me wrong, but you've only got to do that really hard work once to peek over that fence of what your potential or you think your potential is or what it was and you cross through it and you go, oh, okay, cool. There's another little level up here. You've only got to do that once to then have that level of self-belief and confidence to be able to do a multitude of things. And from running 150K Ultra, the knock-on effect through the rest of my life, my consistency, my discipline, my daily routines has been unbelievable, all from a run. Obviously, you did your first ultra marathon was Sri Lanka. Your mm-hmm. well, your first two fifty, first multi-stage, yeah, yeah. So, just for people who are unaware, what is a multi-stage ultra? So, anything that essentially takes day takes place over more than one day. So uh, Ultra X, for instance, they do two days, multi-stage, 125 kilometer race. You'll do, say, 70K on the first day, and then you'll do like 55 the next or whatever it may well be. Uh, but this one was over five days. So on average, you would cover a 50, 50K per day. But I say on average, it isn't exactly the same distance per day. So like day one, you might run 43K. Day two, you might run 50K. Day three, you might run 70K. And then essentially the five-day total adds up to 250, which has obviously been predetermined already by the race coordinators. Um, but basically, it's just anything that lasts more than a couple of days. It, the, the thought of doing one, like I, for me, a long-term goal is to do an ultra, whether it be mm-hmm. 100K, whether it be a 250 uh, staged. But the... 
the training for them is what fascinates me because you did one in Sri Lanka in 30-odd degree heat with near enough 100% humidity, and you did your second in Jordan in the desert. And you trained in the winter of the UK for the first. On a treadmill predominantly. On a treadmill. <laughs> and the second did trained on obviously roads and treadmills, but that's no, like nothing compared to the sand. How did yeah. your body cope with these massive changes? So this is, this is one of the biggest things that I learned and which is what made me really value good periodization. And zone two, zone two, building that base is super, super important. But I got so much stick from people everywhere in the running community who said to me, I was running essentially, my my basic format for the runs were easy run Monday, easy run AM Tuesday, tempo or intervals Tuesday afternoon. So it was always a two run Tuesday, then I'd have Wednesday off be a two run two run Thursday as well so easy in the morning then another variation of longer intervals or something in the evening so you might do a really good example 2k run up and then you do four minute efforts at a higher higher speed and then you would relax for a minute or two minutes and you repeat that six or seven times and then Friday would be an intermediate run so anywhere from one to two hours Saturday was always long run day that started like you're walking in at a two hour run and then by the time I peaked for Sri Lanka, it was like 50-odd, like a 50K, I think was like the longest day. So you're doing like four and a half, five-hour fueled runs at that point. And essentially, that periodization works in a very simple wave effect that I call it. You do three weeks of ramping up, and then you have a week deload. And then you do three weeks of ramping up to the next level, and then you have a deload. And with that, it might mean that the intervals that you were doing for four minutes, they might become five minutes the following week, or they might be an extra interval. So it's tiny, tiny, tiny incremental steps. And I realized, I was like, you want me to run 250K, Sam, but you've got me doing a 30-minute easy in zone two? Have you lost your bloody mind? But you're looking at the total volume. So we use something called training peaks, which follows your form, your fatigue, all sorts, and generally just calculates the amount of distance and time that you spend on your feet. And I was looking, I was like, okay, block one, I might have done, I don't know, 40 miles. I'm like, this is nowhere near one. I'm like, this is so, so much paranoia. And I'm like, this is the amount of volume that I'm getting in a week, let alone I've got to do this probably over one and a half days. And then by the end of it, you peak at, I think my peak week, which is, you do a lot of back-to-back days. The later on you get into the program, because obviously you need to replicate the areas that you can control, which are back-to-back day running. I think we finished at just over 200K we peaked. So it was like a really solid peak before taper. And the, the way that I approach these, I say it the same with my clients, whether they're trying to lose fat, whether they're trying to do a multi-stage ultra, is you have two columns in your life. You have controllable factors and uncontrollable factors. A really classic example is what time you get up in the morning. That is a controllable factor. You set a bloody alarm. So you just make sure that you show up at that time. An uncontrollable factor might be how well you sleep that night because there's so many different, you might have a new child. You might have had a few drinks. You might have a really full bladder. You can't control that. So you can't worry about it. It just goes into this column of it's not for me to worry about. I'm going to worry about this sort of stuff. So what I did with the runs was 
focus on the things that I could control and prepare for. I couldn't prepare for the heat because it was the winter in the UK. I couldn't prepare for the humidity because I wasn't there. You know, simple things like that. As soon as you go, we'll worry about them when we get there. You can then just fully put yourself into the lane of get the damn runs done, work on the damn fueling strategy, make sure that the kit is the right kit that you think is going to work for you. You know, there's nothing worse than when I see people go to a marathon and they've periodized the whole thing. And then the day before they go, oh, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Sally down the road said that these gels are better than the ones that I'm using. So I'm going to change them. Are you absolutely mental? You know, you you work all the time to get this controllable place where everything can be pretty much in your hands apart from some things that you can't control. And then you go, I'll tell you what, the most important thing, which is don't crap yourself on the race. You're potentially just handing yourself because somebody else says it's great. You know, so it kind of helps avoid a lot of those things because you become or I do, a little bit militant about the things that are controllable. I'm like, I'm not changing it. Like, even when I just flew out to Jordan, I didn't even want to eat the food that was in the breakfast bar because I was like, well, I don't want to get a dicky tummy. I've been eating this and I've been having that. So I go to this really nice coffee shop and buy the driest sandwich in history and start eating some of my fueling strategy because I can control that. Um, And... The biggest thing that I learned was don't worry about the factors that are out of your hands. You know, like even I was originally training from Jordan. I was actually training for Mexico, which was meant to be another month. It's meant to be in like two weeks time, which still makes me go, oh, I wonder if they were to change it. Um, but they won't. Uh, and I jumped onto Jordan super late and I was away with my family in Portugal for the whole month in our camper van. And at that point, I was like, there's loads of beaches. I need to get used to running on sand. But then I, after like one run, I was like, this is a beach. This isn't, e- this isn't even going to come close to what I may, may face out there. I don't know if I'm going to be running dunes. I don't know if I'm going to be running gravel. You know, it, all you know is that it's going to be sandy at some point. So what I just did was done like a couple of runs where the last five minutes I'd run across the beach to get back. And then I was like, this I can't control. Because I can't, get, I'm never going to get the amount of volume or time that I'm going to need to feel comfortable here. So sometimes you can, I explore these areas that I'm like, they're kind of sitting on the fence of whether I can control them or whether they're out of my control. And they go the opposite way, like the sand, where I was like, the more running that I try to force now, two, three weeks out, I know that I'm not going to become comfortable enough with this to feel like I'm in control of it. So just let it go. That's the biggest thing that I learned. It's lit. Like, if it was me, I would, you know, I could train all I want on the sand. I would still probably get injured from the sand like that. <laughs> so sometimes it's just it's inevitable that things like that can happen. But I think a big thing as well, it's especially with endurance running, like to that extent, is yep. the um, time on the feet rather than the distance covered. So yes. just talk to me about the differences between the two and why people should prioritize time on the feet rather than trying to run 5k 10k every single time yeah well first of all you've got the very basics of one of the things that you were talking about people who will go to run 5k or run 10k 
they're focusing on a pace, you know, so even like the very, 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 very first thing that I say to people is instead of focusing on pace, when you next go out for your five or 10k, focus on your heart rate, and put your heart rate into your zone two stage, you know, depending on the person, say, for instance, it was, I don't know, an average of 125 to 135 beats per minute, you know, that's a very broad average, that will instantly give you more time on your feet. Because you're going to be focusing on your heart rate, you're going to have to slow down, you're going to be working on those kind of things. And I think it's a, it's a huge thing that's massively overlooked total time, because say, for instance, I did, you know, with Jordan, because it's the most, you know, close in my in my history right now, I spent 29 and a half hours ish on course. But to peak for that, if I was to peak effectively, I would probably in a peak week done around 40 hours on my feet because at the end of the day it doesn't matter about your pacing it doesn't matter about all of your basic running techniques if you can train your body to be able to take step after step after step and just keep moving for a good 10 to 15 percent longer than the thing that you're planning on facing you are instantly instantly reducing your risk of injury because your body's been there to a distance you know most of the people who get an injury from a marathon they go oh it's because i did a marathon it was actually that last five or six miles that you may have never run before in in your training program but you never spent enough time on your feet outside of running so you run up to you know 19 20 21 miles whatever your periodization is ready for your marathon but then when you look at the time block that the most amount of time you spent on your feet, you haven't done something which has been, say your marathon time you wanted was four hours. You've not spent the time on your feet more than maybe three hours and 20 because you're going for a four hour marathon. But some of my clients, they will go out and if they've got a four hour marathon, some of their long peak sessions might be five, five and a half hours long. But the way that they're set up is they've got five minutes of walking in between these 20, 30, 40, 50 minute intervals. And I think time on time, total time on your feet and building that up as a basic volume pattern is super, super important because I, I treat the body like infants. They're very, very simple, fragile things. And exposure is the most important thing for them and gradual exposure for them to go, oh, oh okay, I can do this. And you know, if you're gonna go and run 250K, you best damn know that you can spend that time on your feet, even if you were just to walk half of it, because I think a lot of people don't even think like that. Yeah. It's, it's similar to how professional sports do it. So like a few years ago, I worked in a professional rugby club for a summer yeah. and had to do a dissertation there. And my dissertation was on the use of peak game intensities. So how clubs use, so they'll track players throughout a season and they'll see, Oh, they peaked at this level during a game in terms of high-speed meters and total distance run. And then they'll use that and go, every single week, we need to prepare them for that peak game intensity just in case it was to ever come up again. Yes. And I think that's one thing that is lost in running is people think that, oh, I've got to run 26 miles. I need to run, you know, do it as fast as I can. So it doesn't really matter in terms of how much time I spend on my feet when actually... If you can spend longer on your feet, then you're going to find it not only probably easier, but also there's a less chance of injury when you go for that faster pace. Yeah, I think there is it's, it's something that I would, you know, when I talk about 
I'm, I'm, pr- I'm proud for a multitude of reasons from the runs that I've done. Obviously, the distance, the placings and how it's gone and following the strategy, whatever it may well be. But one of the biggest things that I'm proud of, specifically from Jordan as well, is I come back and I'm not broken. Like, there was people out there, no disrespect, that they looked like mummies <laughs> by the end of the week. They were covered in that much K-tape, holding together dodgy joints, issues that had just got exacerbated over the week. And yes, when you're doing anything that is repetitive as running for 250K, maybe 30, 40, 50 hours for some people, things are going to break at some point. Don't get me wrong. But the thing that I spend so much time fascinating on is as soon as I know that I've got an ultra in, I outsource the stuff that I don't need to worry about, i.e. my coaching periodization. Because then I'm like, right, that's that. The volume is taken care of. I know that my body physiologically is going to be in a place whereby I can cover that distance. Happy days. That's done. And then I go into this weird space of unilateral strength and stability work make my body as strong and robust as i possibly can so i'm i'm sitting there on a treadmill getting ready for a 250k run walking backwards barefoot and an incline on the treadmill (laughs) and people are like what are you doing but reverse mechanics is super important because every single time you're running if you start to overstride you're breaking and it's always people going, oh, I've got patella tendonitis, my quads are hurting, I'm getting all this pain in my legs, runner's knee, it's really bad for you. And yes, if you address your cadence side of things, great, but you also have to make sure that your body is robust enough to be able to control you in, instead of the overstriding, you know, the complete opposite and equal reaction that you're putting through your body. Make yourself as strong in the reverse as you possibly can. And if you spend a little bit more time focusing on that with the runs, I think when you come back, Yes, you've put in the volume that's really going to help. But at the same time, I think all of us would say, what I really want to do is be able to return to the other stuff that I was enjoying or continue enjoying this in the same way as I was beforehand. Because the biggest risk that people are facing is the injury post-run. And like I've had, I even had a heated conversation with someone the other day saying, oh, why would you want to put your body through that? Oh, your joints must be wrecked. And like, it's such a, it's such a shame that anything multi-stage or aggressive endurance based has this tarnished image of patella tendonitis, plantar fasciitis, shin splints, stress fractures, all this kind of stuff, because people unfortunately don't prepare in the way that they should. You know, and don't get me wrong, there's always going to be a risk of injuries, but you can you can limit those by preparing in the right way, I think. And it's you might it might be like you say with professional rugby athletes they might only only maybe get to that point peak intensity again but i would much rather than be ready for only maybe then they get there and the hamstring snaps and they're like oh god and chronic fatigue sets in or something crazy and so just to put this into perspective in terms of your ultra running career like you your first one, you finished third and qualified yeah. for the World Championship qualifying round, was it? Yeah. And then your second, you finished under 30 hours, which was a milestone for the event itself. But where where, yeah. where did you place? I was fifth male, sixth overall out of about 130 people. Which just, like, <laughs> some people, like, at first I looked at it, I was like, that is fucking insane. So for yeah. your first ultra to go that well and then your second ultra to go that well 
But then actually speaking to you now, I'm listening and I'm like, he had every box ticked in the lead yeah. up to it, made sure everything was perfect. Like all the controllables were controlled for. And yeah. that is, that has obviously come across in where you finished, how well you did in each. Yeah. I think it, it seems like common sense, but then when you realize, you know, when you're on course, there's a lot of different things that contribute to, I think with ultras, I'm yet to have one of those ultras where, cause a lot can happen. You can have, I've had what I would classify as two perfect races. And there is going to be a point where I'm going to shit my pants on course or something <laughs> like that. There is going to be a point where a fuel and strategy just doesn't work or a food doesn't go down or whatever it may be. These things do happen. You can randomly just have a dicky tummy. It just happens. But I would say that the number one contributing factor to how well my runs have gone so far aside from finishing places, because at the end of the day, there is a level of natural talent that has to come with these kind of events. And also with multi-stages, you have to hurt and you have to want to hurt. Like I don't mind the dark stuff. I like dark workouts. It's, if I go for a long run, I'm kind of going, oh, this is going to suck so much, but I'm smiling about it rather than going, I just want this to be over. You know, there's, there's, if you're, if you're ticking some of those boxes, you've already got 40% of the battle won anyway. But I genuinely look at the rest of the success to this stage. And I'm like, it's purely because of the amount of work I put in prep. You know, I speak to some people and for whatever reason, it's their own choices. They might have only ran 20K, 30K max before going out and doing a 250K. And I'm like, why? Like, you've not run even one of the stage legs in prep. Oh, yeah, but I don't want to get injured. Much rather get injured before I come out here and completely screw myself up for five days, you know, because there's always the risk. But I even remember, like, there were so many people who were in the run scene when I was getting ready for Sri Lanka and saw me as this social media CrossFit fitness dude and thought I was being way over top, over the top, and I was going to go out to Sri Lanka, fall on my backside with major fatigue because I'd gone too far and done too much, but. In reality, what actually happened was the whole week was there was things that happened that I can't take back and things didn't go in the right way, blah, blah, blah. But the whole week felt familiar. I'd never been there before physically. I'd never run in that heat before. I'd never run in that humidity before. But absolutely everything that was happening from the waist down, all week my body was like, yep, yeah, done this. And, that's, and that in itself is everything. Um, and I just think a lot of people, unfortunately, similar to you see someone step on stage and they're 4% body fat, they go into the gym and go, that's what I'm going to look like. They follow that person's training plan and wonder why they never look like them. Then they call this piece of this person a piece of shit and say that they take steroids and they're this, that and the other. They might do all of those things. But what you also don't see is they are insanely insanely switched on there that person getting on stage in 16 weeks time is waking up at a certain time in the morning to take the supplements that they need to start their day with to go and do their zone two easy steady state to then do their meal prep for the day to then turn around and plan their session for the evening to make sure that they get enough recovery between muscle groups but they're stimulating everything that they need they're not just finishing work at 5 5 p.m from a job that they hate and going in and just benching three times a week you know, there's the process, 
the process is everything that I coach now. And it's probably just as much because I'm insanely, in a word, obsessed with it myself. Process is everything. I realized that for so many years, I was focused on a result for somebody that a result was always so hollow because they don't even know how they really got there or why they're there or does it even matter anymore. And I'm like, but you've got everything that you seemingly aesthetically want. Yeah, but it feels crap. And it feels crap because there is no passion there whatsoever. There is nothing that they get to take away from it apart from, we've all seen it. I'm going to get back to that. This is their photo from summer 2012. That's what I'm <laughs> going to get back to. You're not. You've just got that one accolade of this time that you got there, but you have none of the process that was the really important ingredients to get you there. And that's that's essentially the way that I live my life and run my business nowadays. Yeah. Um, you spoke about then that you how physically prepared you were for the ultras. But there was a point in the Jordan video where you obviously went through mentally a pretty tough time. And yeah. it was quite refreshing to see that you ha- weren't just going to put in the video, um, you know, oh, you know, it went well, this happened, this happened. Oh, it was a bit tough. You actually, at the time, showed us how shit it was for you. Yeah. Yes. And so talk to me about how it was going through that at that time, being on your own in the desert. So one of the uncontrollable factors, which was by far the hardest one for me was there was a good chance. And I say a good chance. We didn't know until we had athlete brief in the day that we left for the desert. There was a good chance that we weren't going to have any network whatsoever. A lot of people might say, wow, get to just fully immerse yourself in this. And I'm like, I'm a dad. I'm a husband. My wife and my daughter, are my, they're my world. They are even just having a conversation and knowing everything's all right makes me feel grounded and centered. They're always, it's always been the same. And my daughter's three and a half years old. And since the day that she's been born, I don't believe a day has gone by. I can say this and sound like a hypocrite now because of Jordan. But before that, I don't think a day had gone by where I hadn't either spoken to her, seen her on FaceTime or genuinely been at home in the room. So something that I was a little bit anxious about beforehand kind of essentially happened so me and the wife made this plan was like look i will voice note you first thing in the morning i will voice note you while i'm on course and i'll voice note you when i get back with little updates essentially just telling you how everything's going they weren't going through but i was like what would happen is that if i fell into a patch of signal they would go through so sunday we arrive in wadi um and nothing comes through and, and he's literally blackout. And I'm going, this is so strange. Obviously, being a social media dude, it's like, fuck. I was like, there's no contact with the outside world. And all I could think about was my girls. And then I go into the next day, send them a voice note. Obviously, it's not going through. Do the whole of the first day, do the voice note thing. And at this point, I must admit, I'm like, I'm four or five voice notes deep and I've heard nothing. And it's just crap. I just want to speak to them. You know, just just want to know that everything's all right. And even if there was an issue, I would have known. There were satellite phones. You know that. But in reality, it's just really uncomfortable. Um, and then on the second day, I was in a patch where we'd all gone out way hard on day one. Like way. My average heart rate was 160 BPM on day one for a marathon in the That's sand. Cool. Bearing in mind that my average heart rate for this run was about 135. 
so I was like in a I was in a I was in basically a post marathon day pain for somebody who'd not run a marathon before so the following day I'm hobbling to the line everything's tired a lot of the negative questions are coming up of I've not even got to nearly halfway of this and I'm hurting a lot. My hip was really annoyed. There was there was like a few physical things that were happening that made me start to question myself in that respect. And then we go through um, this random patch of signal at the same time as some messages come through from my missus. And I get a couple of miss- messages from my daughter um, and a message from my wife and some pictures and when you're at this point where you're really questioning yourself, you're kind of rock bottom. It's amazing to hear from somebody that you you love and you care about. But at the same time, you also are getting comfort screaming at you going, this could all be over right now. I could go home and they wouldn't care. They'd just be happy to, to that dad's home. They'd just be happy that the husband's back in the room. So it was like, this screaming comfort rock bottom feeling that I felt. And then I just had this overwhelming urge to say, I, this is what I'm supposed to share. This is, this is the, the stuff that I need to remember for myself as well as to help people when I get back. Because if somebody just, if I just did this race and it went as well as what it did and there was no contrast, there was no honesty, there was no raw content. It was just me going, oh, yeah, sixth place, happy days, sub 30. People are like, it switches people off. It doesn't help anyone. I feel like it only really helps people when they can really connect with the reality of what it is. And it's like, yes, a 250K desert run is always going to be hard, no matter whether you've prepared for your eyeballs or not. But the stuff that you really take away i think is the human element stuff and the real contact stuff and i think for me that was just a really raw moment where i was like this is really shit somebody might feel like that halfway for a 5k effort someone might feel like that through their first half marathon and remind and it reminds them that we're all human and we all go through the same things and it was it was so important for me to go through that if i didn't go through that low where I really, really questioned whether I could do this thing, I don't think it would have felt worth it to me. Yeah, it's, I think it's sort of, that's resembled in the, so in your post-race podcast that you did, you said you can't wait for the world before you back yourself. And at that moment in time, you are real, that's where you go, I am backing myself 110% to finish this. Yeah, yeah, it was a mixture of, okay, great, everything's back fine at home. Nice to hear their voices, the the comfort side of things go. I see this random contrast in the seemingly barren environment that I was in, which was some camels just walking around. And I was like, I had this really random moment of gratitude. I was really grateful for this situation that I was in. I was in a place I've never experienced such raw beauty it was barren. I had no signal, so I could really be there. I was like eight, four tenth in the race. This huge, overwhelming feeling of I need to be extremely grateful for this situation. This is phenomenal. And when you can still experience extreme gratitude in a situation which you just want to be over, you just get this overwhelming power. Like physically, I just went, 
Oh, it's happening. It's going to get done. And there was no, there was no moment at all from that point on where anything was going to feel as bad as that unless I was to stop completely. And just having that in my mind, the, it was fine. The rest of the way of the race, I was like, the rest of the race is done now. Completely yeah. done. And, so what's, uh, sorry. Um, what's next for you? What's next for the ultras? What's next for Leon? <clears throat> uh, big thing. I want other people to experience it. I'm not going to force people to come and do 250s <laughs> or 125s or anything like that. But the the way that what I've gained, put it this way, what I've gained from, yes, it's not just the ultras, don't get me wrong, but I'm going to say challenge, building resilience, doing stuff that kind of sucks for, you know, delayed gratification, if you want to call it that, has genuinely changed my life. And I think no matter how many times I get Sally down the road to make her love handles a little bit smaller or fit into her dress size 10 that she wants to get into, that is going to feel fraudulent that I continue to just try and push that message and tell people to do that stuff when I know what they could get from putting themselves in a bit of a hole and pushing forward and, and coming through it. It's not for everyone to do ultras, but one of the things that I really came away from Jordan with is I want to be part of other people's journey to experience things like that. So next year, I'm hoping to create a partnership with Ultra X whereby I can get people's entry fees a lot cheaper for them. Because again, you know, the this stuff does cost money. Um, and then I'm going to coach these people and we're going to go and run the race together. So it might be England 125, two-day event nice entry level for some people i go out there with five people i i coach them through it we get through it physically and mentally together and they get to cross that finish line and they are a completely different human sounds really indulgent really selfish in a lot of ways but i'm like that's what i'm passionate about i want to be part of that for somebody so in the ultra space i'm going to be doing a lot more stuff on the circuit i think next year but just to put it in perspective, I did two 250s this year and it was eight months of training. Eight months of the year taken up and a lot of sacrifice for the family, a lot of sacrifice for the sleep um, to get the runs done that I would, I would do more 250s. But I think my focus is to essentially be at the space where I can always just rock up on a race, a start line and get involved for the journey and do a 50k or do a 100k just to have some fun because i feel like that's in the in the armory now um but to specifically train for 250s in the way that i have been moving forward i just don't think it's achievable i think maybe at most maybe one 250 in a year the rest of the time it'll be like jump chuck in a couple of marathons see how we get on chuck in a couple of trail runs go and explore a different country so yeah that's majorly the main thing and then obviously well into my jiu-jitsu so doing everything that i can to start working towards my blue belt now why jiu-jitsu um i don't know i think i've always i always wanted to be involved in like a martial art from a different perspective to contact sport in terms of i say contact sport but think about it it is different to being punched in the face but i was always quite reluctant because my only image was what boxing was like 
And then through a mutual sponsor, we ended up rolling with now, like he's a Hall of Famer, Braulio Estima, who's like an absolute goat in the jiu-jitsu world. And the same as with CrossFit. I just got the right introduction at the right time and the right impression of that sport or martial art. And I think it humbles you in all of the right ways. There's there's nothing worse than somebody seemingly kneeling over you with their forearm across your throat in the, in a nice way. And you're sitting there going, I thought I was pretty strong. I thought I was pretty capable in this world. And no matter what you do, you're not going anywhere. It's, it's great to be on the, the giving end, I guess, of that where you can turn around and you can manipulate people's weight and take their strengths away from them by using technique and it's really really cool for like self-defense and feeling a little bit more capable in you know an ever more vigilant or violent world that we live in it's great for that it's great for my daughter you know i'm teaching my daughter how to do scissor sweeps and triangles and all this sort of stuff and it sounds really crude but i'm like a three and a half when you've got a three and a half year old daughter you can either prepare them for the world that they might be walking into or you can try and react when shit potentially goes wrong it's a 0.1.1.1 percent of a chance that she could be in a very horrible potentially sexually violent situation and i've always said i'm like i want her to be in any situation that she ever finds herself in as a grown-up with some tools and i remember when Braulio first essentially did this thing. We call it like passing your guard. Essentially, he was kneeling on my torso with his hips on my hips and was like stopping me using my arms. And I was, she was the first thing that came into my head. And I was like, it's a horrible image to have this word sexual assault or rape or attack when you think in your daughter straight away. Not that I would want to affirm that or manifest that into the future. But she just shot into my head and I was like, I don't want her to ever feel like this. Uh, so that was all of the incentive that I needed, uh, as well as a ton of enjoyment. I had half a day with the man and it was unbelievable. It was in close quarters with guys, which unless you're like a rugby player or a sports player from youth, you like, you don't really have that bucking thing of like everyone walking around. And it's not like in a, a sexual driven way, but it's like nobody walking around naked having a laugh men being men just high-fiving and chilling and it's all good you don't really have that it's always quite an awkward thing to be in a male's personal space unless it was like i'm presuming from like a sexual perspective so there's always like that side of that barrier just gets broken down where you're like just two guys trying to impose your will upon each other and for me it gives great confidence and resilience it builds me up because i you know last night i turned around and gave someone an amazing collar choke and i was like banging got a guy in an arm bar banging then got bow and arrowed and flipped over like i was a bag of sand by the next guy and i'm like oh, okay cool it's quite neutralizing in that it's, sense and it's the same same as me doing like cold dips people just see someone getting in cold water for the sake of getting in cold water or are you getting in cold water for all these health benefits and i'm like all that stuff's great, but I'm getting in cold water because I don't want to get in cold water first thing in the morning. And it builds that resilience because it breaks you down to a bare basic of how long can I stay in here? Can I stay in here long enough? And there's a competitive element and it keeps building you up. And I feel like it's a gift that keeps giving. 
it's jujitsu is definitely one of the sports where I look at it and from a resilience and a I think to it's so hard to motivate yourself and especially when you're just starting out because I remember when I started out you know you're getting choked out every single time you not don't stand a chance with anyone and then that first time you you know you get someone in a rear naked choke for the first time you yeah. get an arm bar that feeling is unbelievable and then you may have like a you know you you roll four times the first three you choke people out and you've you build this ego and then all of a sudden someone's choked you out in 10 seconds it's really good at humbling you and putting you in your place which is what i absolutely yeah. love about it because i think there's not enough people that have been through an experience like that yeah there's there's like i've got a whole friendship circle that would be so happy doing jujitsu like they come from they love anime they love manga they love avengers they love all this kind of crazy that they were tekken tekken lovers as kids street fighters like that you can tell they're built they like they're built for jujitsu they would study it and that's the thing with jujitsu you have to study it you can't just partake because you'll just get your ass handed to you all the time but they are so fearful of that potentially being choked out or being that broken down that humble side of it where your ego does get stripped back that they'll never walk in the door and i feel sorry for them because we need more of that in our lives to open up the good you need the contrast if there's no contrast there's just a dull boring wave of life that goes through and unfortunately there's so many people who just exist on that wave because they don't want to get called out they don't want to poke their head again over the fence and get shouted down by people but they also don't want to be humbled so much so that they feel like they're going to be attacked and i think jiu-jitsu is is amazing for that and yeah you know you see people who get into it and they quit after three months after three months they're still a hundred percent more capable than 95 percent of the population in the world unless you go to austin and you're, you're screwed because everybody's <laughs> a purple belt i imagine um but yeah, it's kind of gone from, for me, being this huge thing of, right, want to be a black belt, was what I said as soon as I got in. That's the ego. want to be a black belt. And now I just respect the, the sport and the craft so much that I'm like, if I could get a blue belt, I would be over the moon. Oh, yeah. Like, that's, like a, that's like a two, maybe three-year project for some people, depending on the time that you put in and how much you study and what the professor's looking for. You know, there's, there's, there is like, I would imagine if you looked across jujitsu, there's probably more blue belts in the world than anyone else. And you look at that as like, well, this is the first belt after white. But the amount of work that goes into a blue belt, as well as all the other belts, but the feeling I got when I got my first stripe the other month, I literally lost my mind. And I was like, basically... I'm 1% less shit than I was four months ago. And I've also, one of the blue belts made me aware, he's like, you've also just put a massive beacon on your head from all of the white belts who haven't got stripes that they need to now impress everybody and, and use you as a punch bag. So now when I roll with whites who haven't got a stripe, they're already so much harder to roll with, which is great for me, but they're all going, he's got a stripe, I want a stripe. That means I need to tap him out to get my stripe, which is, you know, the natural logical sense. But it's amazing, amazing, and I'm very much enjoying it. Um, I appreciate that we, we've had two hours. It's been an incredible conversation. Fine. So 
I, I, I want to finish up here um, with one final question, and it's just as simple as, how would you like to be remembered? How would I like to be remembered? Um, probably, I think, as much as anything, is the guy who, if he said he was going to do something, he was going to do it to the best of his ability. I think that's probably the easiest way. I could probably get think about it in a much deeper sense. But I think there was something that I always wanted as a kid is people to go, Leon's reliable. He's gonna if he says he's gonna be here at seven o'clock, he's gonna be at probably seven o'clock. He might even be here at five, five two. You know, there's there's that reliability factor on basic stuff that if I say I'm gonna show up, I'm gonna show up. And I've always wanted that consistency. And I think whether you look across my career, you look across my training, you look across my father, my father and husband life, I would like people to do to remember me as someone who said, if he did said he was gonna do it, he did it. Amazing. And he did it properly. Amazing. <laughs> I really appreciate appreciate you having having you on. Um would you just like to tell everyone where they can find you online and that kind of thing? Yeah, of course. Obviously, um, most socials, you'll find us as The Lean Machines. Apart from the Instagram, it's The Lean Machines Official. If you want to uh, find me personally, I'm Leon Busty, L-E-O-N-B-U-S-T-Y on Instagram. Um, And yeah, you'll be able to find pretty much everything you need from there. Amazing. Appreciate you coming on. No worries. I hope you all enjoyed that episode of the Quantum Podcast with Leon Bustin. Again, Leon, I can't thank you enough for your time. The answers you gave were so in-depth and you didn't hide away from any of the questions I had for you. So thank you very much for being a guest on the podcast. And yeah, please give the podcast a like and subscribe to us on YouTube. Also comment below if you took anything away from this podcast, if there's anything that I can improve on with this podcast. And also follow us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts and follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next one.